Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? I'm really excited to introduce Andy Towers to all of you on the Philosophy podcast. Andy is a great friend of mine. Uh, we were teammates together back at Brown, and he has had a phenomenal career as a player and as a coach. Uh, was a two-time first-team All-American and really was arguably the greatest face-off guy of all time, but at the same time really made first-team All-American because he was a great player, scored over 150 goals in his college career, played midfield and attack, and has coached the game at every single level from youth up to pros. He is going to be uh, head coach in the new PLL. We're going to talk about that, uh, but along the way, he's, he's coached Division I lacrosse at Yale, at Hartford, at Dartmouth, at Brown, and um, uh, honestly, one of the smartest guys in the game and uh, one of the best guys in the game, and we're really excited to introduce you. Andy, how's it going? It's going great, James. Thanks for that uh, humbling intro. I appreciate it. Yeah, you got it, man. So, um, listen, what, before we kind of get started, I really want to talk about PLO, but before we get there, um, like I do with a lot of the guests, um, will you just talk a little bit about your journey as a player and a coach and, um, and some of your biggest – mentors and influencers uh, that were coaches of yours along the way and players. And um, it, it, it might have to start with, with Howard Benedict, I would hope, but uh, let's um, maybe you can just fill us in on some of your thoughts on that. No question. Uh, you know, Howard Benedict is a all time uh, across the board in many, many areas, hall of famer. Uh, you know, I, I was lucky, very lucky to grow up in New Canaan, Connecticut, where, uh, there was a youth league formed, and the first year of that youth league was actually my class when we were third graders. So we were wow. sort of the first group to go through a full, you know, five years, uh, five or six years of youth league lacrosse before we were ninth graders at New Canaan High School. My class, uh, you know, we had a great class. We had, I think, back in 1987, I think we ended up having 10 guys that went on to go play Division One lacrosse out of our class, which is pretty incredible. Wow. When you think about it. Um, but certainly it starts with Howard Benedict, you know, growing up in a town like New Canaan, Howard Benedict just did an unbelievable job of sort of knocking the silver spoon out of everybody's mouth day one. And, you know, some people needed it knocked out of their mouths more than others. Certainly I was probably at the top of the list who needed it knocked out of their mouth. <laughs> What was your nickname again? Uh, it was uh, F period, A period, Jamie. Um, and I'll let the viewers try to figure that acronym out. Uh, <laughs> was profanity in, in both words. Uh, everybody <laughs> else kind of had their nicknames put on the chalkboard when we were doing man up plays, but I was, I was known as F period, A period. So it'd be like KA at X, Kevin Eric's, you know, FA on the left. Right. That's right. That's right. And I was F period, A period. And, uh, and he was probably right. He was probably right. And so it went from, uh, it went from coach Benedict, who was, did an unbelievable job to, I did so well in school that I actually qualified for postgraduate year in Lawrenceville. Oh, you took a pretty good year. Yeah, they wanted to bring me down there to make sure I was the student that I led them to believe that I was. And based on my Brown career, certainly I, uh, I proved that Jamie. 
Uh, so I was fortunate to go down there and had a, did a PG year at Warrensville, where I played for legendary uh, Hall of Fame coach Marshall Chambers, and then was fortunate to be recruited by another Hall of Fame coach, Dom Stargia, also PLL coach, um, and uh, you know played for him. Obviously, an outstanding staff with Pete Lasagna, Paul Hooper, and then after my junior year, Dom went to Virginia. I came back, Pete had taken over the head job and hired Joe Bresci, who's now the head coach at North Carolina and Pete and Joe Bresci. Um, you know, again, it was, it was a, a different experience playing for them than it was for Dom, but clearly they did a phenomenal job while we were 10 and three. And I felt like we got screwed out of the playoffs in 93. Uh, the following year, we were able to coach together along with Sam Jackson. So it was Sam, myself, Joe Bresci, and Pete. And we ended up going to the Final Four in 94 when David Evans was a sophomore. And, uh, you know, that experience sort of got me into wanting to coach college lacrosse. My mentors in college lacrosse, you know, certainly coaching with Pete and Joe Bresch. Um, got out of it for a couple of years, ended up taking your spot. When you went to Denver, I went to Yale and worked with Mike Waldvogel and Daryl Delia and learned an unbelievable amount about uh, the game from Coach Waldvogel in particular, just in the way that he thought, you know, he, he was just a, an awesome guy to devil's advocate situations to, because he would, of course, have an answer that would uh, silence you until you <laughs> could regroup. And sometimes you could regroup and make a rebuttal. And other times he had to verbally pin, but that was the magic of Mike. Right. <laughs> and then uh, went and worked with Spence, Ted Spencer, for a couple of years at Fairfield. Oh, yeah. Um, had some success there and then went up to University of Hartford for a year, was, was going to get out of coaching after my first year at University of Hartford. It was tough to make a 90-mile commute each way for essentially no money with a brand-new baby at home. And, uh, but was fortunate to get offered an opportunity to get back into the Ivy League and, and coach up at Dartmouth with Billy Wilson and Bartolo Governanti and did that for five years and then got an opportunity to, to coach at Dartmouth as the head coach and quickly realized over the span of five years that the reason I got into coaching uh, slowly became less and less of, of what the job actually was about. You know, I, I loved going to practice every day. Um, you know, I, I didn't particularly love the other aspects of the job. And, and as you know, from being a head coach at DU for so many years that, you know, slowly the job becomes more about uh, managing the expectations and desires of your constituents. And it seems like why you really got into it or, or, or what the job is really about, you know, trying to create a great experience and win games at the college level and, and try to build, you know, great people. It just seemed like, as time went on, it became less and less and less about that aspect in the job. And I, and I, I liked coaching college across, but I honestly believe that, you know, unless you love it, like you cannot believe it's just too much of a time commitment, uh, you know, with, with the other things that I wanted to do. And, and, and fortunately I was able to uh, leave on good terms with Dartmouth. It was a great experience. I wouldn't take it back, but I certainly would not go back to, to college coaching you know the PLL is is the perfect scenario I said to my wife 
about five years ago when I got out of Dartmouth, I said, you know, I'm, I'm so psyched to be getting out of college coaching. Um, but what I really would love to do is, is to get involved with coaching where it's, it's just about the lacrosse and you're not looking to, you know, manage other things that go along with it that, that maybe you aren't as passionate about. Well, the lacrosse is, is definitely, uh, you know, the, the on-the-field portion of it is probably 5% of the job between recruiting and compliance and fundraising and, you know, all of the, the fires you have to put out. I mean, you're in charge of 40, you know, 18, 22-year-olds that are, you know, doing what, you know, what, what we might have done back in the day. And, and um, you can't just do but that. May or, right. May or not. We, we yeah. may or may not. We may or may not have. F.A. <laughs> F.A. may have. That was a different time, Jamie, a different generation. It was a different generation. It was beers on the bus. <laughs> it was beers on the bus. It was beers on the bus. That was the generation. But, um, uh, you know, the one, the one stop along the way you forgot to talk about was the one stop you forgot to talk about was the Denison stop where you got to coach with uh, Mike Caravana. Mike C. Mike C. C. So uh, Treated me that, very, very well. Yeah. That was the one example where, you know, you were, you know, where, where someone learned the hard way never to do stick protection drills with no equipment on when you're playing with a long Oh, time. yeah, John Eidenberg, you know. I think that John was this kid that was a junior at Denison when I went out there and coached for a year with Mike C between my junior year at Brown and my senior year at Brown. Uh, I was encouraged by the school to take a year on, which I did, Jamie. Um, and, and I was fortunate to land on my feet out there working with Mike C, living with Mike C. And we had this kid, John Eidenberg, who was just about 140 pounds. He was tough as hell. And, you know, before practice one day, I picked up the long pole and, you know, he picked up a ball and it, it started with just kind of like a little fake butt end dig and a little butt end dig into a long john. And then he rolled back. And, of course, I did a you know, a delay wrap forward slap. And then I did the one arm, the delayed one arm wrap. And right when I did the delayed one arm wrap, Eidenberg stepped into the front end of the big fake. And sure enough, I hit him in the spot just above his top lip, top lip and below his nose. And sure enough, four teeth whole <laughs> fell out of his mouth onto the tennis court hole and he was fine he like covered up his mouth and it wasn't wasn't that big of a deal for him um i was mortified on the verge of tears and my buddy brendan gilson and who now coaches at, at brunswick school in connecticut was a defenseman on the team and he picked him up and goes oh don't worry eddie we'll just throw these back in your mouth and looked over at me and mouth oh my god and rolled his eyes and sure enough he threw him in a little glass of milk and and they ended up getting thrown back into eddie's mouth and he had this <laughs> Extensive headgear just in time for spring break of his junior year. Uh, I could drop I, a ball. I can't imagine it, it helped him in uh, the after hours arena, but I'm sure yeah. it toned his rap having to get out of that yeah. prediction. And the, well, the moral of that story is um, there, there's no upside if, if you're doing just walk away. Yes, there's walk no away. upside. So you drop the ball, drop, drop your the stick, stick, walk away. Drop the stick, walk away. Drop the stick and the ball, walk away. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. Uh, another uh, funny story that I wanted to bring up was just um, 
you know, you invented this move. It's very rare. And it's called the trip move. Ah, yes. And the trip move, you know, for those of you guys, it, 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 you'll, you'll see it. Paul Radel actually does a fair amount of trip moves. But, but basically, you know how, like, when you're um, – Coaches are like, okay, you know, we got to be ready to slide because what if so-and-so falls down? You remember that? Like coaches will always talk about somebody sure. falling down and then you got to be able to slide. And, and it occurred to me, the reason why people actually fall down is because in, inadvertent trip moves, which happens when right. you are uh, running, turning the corner like you're going to beat them and then decide at the last second, nah, I'm not going to, and you pop out and they end up kicking your heel and falling down. And all of a sudden they fell down, but because it wasn't an uh, on-purpose move, you know, they don't take advantage of it. But the fact is, is that you figured out a way to actually do a trip move on and off the ball. You know, tell us a little bit about that and, and how Mike Walvogel responded during practice. Yeah, no, that's uh, no doubt. So that, uh, that move came about when I was coaching at Yale and we were doing one-on-ones from above the goal. And I liked to do one-on-ones from spots where we dodged from and we ran a lot of one for one So we would do one-on-ones from the top center of the goal. And, you know, you know from your time at Yale, a little different than, <laughs> than it is now at Yale, but we had some, uh, some, some, some good players, but we just had trouble consistently creating slides off the dodge with the offensive players that we had. And as you remember, Mike Morris, who we called Tyke because he was uh, short in stature, but shorter in character. No, I'm joking, Mike. You aren't. Uh, and, and, and so he was insistent that he could beat anybody off the dodge. And he had a quick lateral direction, which was good, but he didn't have great out and out speed. And so what happened was our more athletic D midfielders and poles would have a tendency to step out and really pressure our guys. Our guys would make the first move and they would create a little bit of separation. And then sure enough, the better athletes would close on these guys and would really be able to land checks, get good depth on their checks, not only the poles, but also the short sticks. And so what we started to do was we would do the split, make the sprint. And as these guys were starting to close, we would slow up just a little bit. And then with our inside foot, just step in to their recovery and sure enough they'd go down and, and and we did it and Mike was a smart really smart guy they're all smart guys but Mike was very smart in figuring it out and became unbelievably good at it and 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 probably in about a span of maybe five minutes of one-on-ones we probably did 10 or 15 we probably had you know five or six successful trip moves and finally coach Waldvogel just goes what's going on why is everybody falling <laughs> it was just like a belly laugh for uh, for the offensive guys and myself. But at that point, it became something that we leaned on quite a bit because it really is a weapon because the trip move, of course, you're going to get that late in the dodge. Um, and if you get it late in the dodge against a team that isn't sliding, you know, you're going to be in a position to get some good scoring opportunities out of that. And and I've taken that, and, and now my son James does it all the time, and we laugh about it all the time. And, uh, you know, trying to think about how to integrate it into other sports. You can do it in basketball. You can do it in football. Um, but in lacrosse, it really seems like it's, uh, it's easy to exploit. I, um, as you know, I taught Colin how to do that when he was about six. And well, uh, I loved that story. What was that story again that Colin was racing his buddy in the street? Can you yeah, well, Sarah's walking up to get – 
get get calling at school. He lived down the street from the elementary school, and and he, him and his buddy saw, you know, mom. And so they like sprinted down to him, and all of a sudden, like you know, Isaac just went down hard, <laughs> and it was like he's like all you know skinned, you know, skin hands and chin, and, and Colin like looks at um, Sarah, and he feels really bad, and he's just like. I, I, I did the fake, we called it the fake pop out. Yeah, I love it. You can't yell, hey, do a trip move because, you know, but you could say, hey, do a fake pop out because it really is kind of a fake pop out. Yeah, absolutely. But anyways, he was like, I, well, did, yeah. he was like, I did the fake pop out, but I, I thought he would fall on the grass. Uh, so I had well, to ban the fake listen. pop out because it just was getting, it, it was like, it was stunting his growth. Well, the race was too close. You know, the race was too close, you know, and, and he was, you know, Colin was really in a corner at that point. So hopefully Sarah was able to alleviate any guilt associated with skinning up his friend's chin and knee on the pavement. That is pebbles in the hands. Pebbles oh, in the hands. Uh, the good old days. Good old uh, but so, um, yeah, I worked on the trip move at, at DU. We did that all the time, you know. Yeah. And it, it truly is not everybody can do it that well. And it's funny because there were some guys that were really tall that had a very easy time doing it. And there were other guys, you know, like Mike Morris that were shorter guys that were pretty good at it. Um, it's, it's definitely like worth doing. And if you watch, it does happen. Um, you, you can set Jesse it up. Leder used to do it all the time. He did it. He did it. He moved that forearm to freaking hammer the guy right over his, um, I think they outlawed it in, in, in uh, NLL actually. It's, it's a, it's a, there's an offensive trip in the NLL now. I think mostly because Snyder and Ramble did it all the time. Well, it's, it's an easy thing to get. The key is getting the on-ball defender to open up his hips and go full speed. When you get him to open up his hits, hips and accelerate full speed to stay in the play, that's when you get him. You know, if you try to do it too early, you're not going to get him because the defender has to sort of be out of control a little bit. Yeah. To not, you know, be able to make the adjustment when you step into him to go down. And, uh, you know, some people, like you said, some people just pick it up and some people are super nice kids. Yep, yep. And some people get Charlie horses in their calves, like me, whenever I would try to do it. But I think it was because I never got anyone going full speed, so I would just end up like getting a knee to the right. calf. You got to really let it develop. You got to really develop. It's a great thing to be aware of for guys that, you know, maybe aren't incredibly fast, knowing that those are the guys that are ripest to get pressured by defenders. If they don't pressure you, you're not getting it. That's true, also. Yeah, true. The Philocrosophy podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 video assessment tool. There's no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son or daughter must utilize video to learn their game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash video right now. Um, all right, let's turn the uh, subject over to the PLL. Um, so tell us a little bit about the process, um, your thoughts on it, the process of, you know, being hired. Um, you know, maybe there's some things that you aren't uh, allowed to disclose yet, uh, but the stuff that you are, please uh, share with us how excited you are and your thoughts on this whole thing and kind of what your plans are. Yeah, well, you know, first off, I just can't overstate how uh, appreciative I am of the opportunity that Paul and Mike have given me. Um, you know, I, I can't overstate how humbling it is to be part of something that's so incredibly exciting, probably the most exciting news in this sport uh, in a long, long time. And to not only be 
selected by those guys, but also to be coaching alongside Hall of Famer Dom Stargia, you know, longtime D1 coaches, Staggs, Batesy, you know, John Paul, um, Nat St. Laurent. I just, I, I, I love the camaraderie that the group already has, not to mention being able to coach with that group with and against and, and be able to, uh, you know, coach what will be the best players in the world. Um, you know, hopefully we can bring out the best in them, um, you know, but they don't need anybody to tell them how to play. You know, if we're able to give them some loose structure so that they feel empowered by scheme and not micromanaged and, you know, ideally put the right combinations together and, and you know, allow dialogue to dictate product, I think, um, you know, we're going to be successful. But I don't have a doubt in my mind that the league is going to be successful. I mean, it is, it's really, really impressive listening to these guys talk. I mean, they really are some smart, smart guys, and they've got some serious backing with some really smart people, uh, everybody geared to making this thing go. And I think just what they've been able to accomplish in such a short time sets the foundation for even wilder success down the road. I mean, they're really going to bring the sport into households all across the country that just aren't that familiar with the product or the sport at this point. So these guys are, these guys are, are phenomenal. Yeah. Paul, Paul Rabel is incredibly impressive. We all, we already know he's a, you know, an all time great player, but, uh, but his business acumen, his work ethic. Um, he is, you know, he's, he, he makes you, he, he kind of has a, like an Elon Musk ish to him a little bit, you know, the way he thinks outside the box and the way he seems to understand social media and so many other things around it. You know, obviously he's a phenomenal athlete, a great lacrosse player and has been for a long time, but I'm not so sure he's not a, a smarter guy than he is yeah. an athlete. I mean, that's a fact. And, and all you got to do is, is listen to him. I listened to his podcast a bunch of times before the PLL even really was officially announced. And, and remember thinking to myself, what the hell was he saying? Like he, he, he says so many things that you're kind of like, you know, what does that mean? And, and yeah. usually I don't have a problem understanding people, but he really is, uh, you know, uh, got, a, got a vision and, and seems to have a very concrete plan to execute that vision and it's humbling and exciting to be part of it yeah it's really cool um and you know the the whole I, i've really taken a deep dive into uh digital marketing myself um and it's really been because you know i went and sold 3d and i i have a non-compete so i can't i'm not allowed to do any anything in person anymore but i still have this passion and so he's really been a guy that i have uh followed closely and been just pretty blown away by and he was smart enough to get into it really early so you know he understands it takes so many years of time to really understand the ins and outs of how to leverage social media it's not just about how many followers you have or you know um you know what what you post there's so much more to it as far as learning how to how to monetize it um so um, and, he, and he does it humbly. you know he does it humbly he's uh yeah, he yeah, I mean, he, no does it, he, he does it the right way. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think it's really cool. Um, and uh, this coaching staff is awesome. Um, you know, it's a you know great group of guys, um, and uh, it's going to be really interesting to sort of see how the teams come together and um, you know 
it's going to be a, a, a lot of the best players in the world um, playing in a new arena. There's going to be a major excitement. Um, I think the, the traveling model, I think, is really cool, too. I think it's, uh, without a question, you know, it's very doable to be able to pack stadiums, you know, one weekend at a time in different places around the country where folks are starved for it. And, and, and you know, I think a lot of people are like, well, you know, how do you have a fan base? Well, listen, I, 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 most people in pro sports are fans of players more so than they are, you know, like if Houston's on in the NBA, I'm watching Harden. Right. Know? If the Lakers are on, it's because if I'm watching, it's because I'm watching LeBron or it was Kobe or Michael. I wasn't, you know, I was a Celtics fan, but I watched the Bulls because I wanted to watch Michael Jordan play. And so it's going to be the same for, uh, for lacrosse too. Well, that's, that's a lot of the due diligence that they did on this, the marketing research you know, yielded the same, the exact same evidence. And clearly they're taking that into consideration with the way that they're structuring the game day experience here. And, um, you know, no doubt, I, I love the model as well. Very cool. Um, all right. So for all of you listeners out there, um, this uh, podcast today was, you know, kind of like your typical model that I've used as far as talking to folks about their coaching journey and their mentors and, and what they're up to. Um, but I also want to introduce the fact that Andy and I are going to uh, attempt to do a, a weekly uh, in-season is what we're going to call this uh, version edition of the Philacrosophy podcast. And our in-season edition will be a weekly Tuesday uh, podcast in which we're going to talk about uh, current events. We're going to talk about college cross. I mean, we can talk about anything really, but I think we'll probably be talking about, you know, uh, our passion, which is what's going on in Division One college cross. Um, and so um, I figured we'll sort of finish up today's podcast with just uh, setting the setting the table for that, um, with maybe talking about some of the storylines and and some of the uh, preparation that goes into uh, you know um, just knowing what's going on. So. Um, um, why don't you uh, kick this off, Andy, with some thoughts that you have um, coming into the year? You know, I think that this year, I, uh, first of all, I'm really looking forward to it, Jamie. Since uh, RD went to Bucknell and we were no longer able to continue the In Your Face podcast that we did two years ago, this is a really, really uh, awesome thing for us to be able to do. Yeah. The hope, the hope is that uh is that we add value to the listeners and you know they may not always love what we say but we're gonna be honest um so i listen what i'm looking for most about this college season is i feel like it's the year of the attackman more than anything else you look at the return of pat spencer and royola you look at jeff t and cornell you look at um uh, michael kraus down at virginia you look at Michael Sowers at Princeton. I, I feel like this is, I can't remember a year, I mean, outside of last year, because so many of these guys have been, you know, two and four year starters based on what year they are in college. But I'm really excited to, to watch, particularly these four teams at the top, which I consider the top four, well, maybe five. But I really think that with Yale, Maryland, Duke, Loyola, Cornell, to me, those, those five are established. And then you've got programs that are right there behind them. You know, I think Virginia is, is kind of in a unique standalone spot there at six. 
while they haven't really done it yet, I mean, Lars has, has obviously turned the program around in that they're, you know, now winning ACC games. And, you know, they're very, very close to winning, you know, I think probably three more games last year. And, you know, I don't think it would have surprised anybody if Virginia had gone to the Final Four. I mean, Loyola did, and Loyola beat them, I think, 13-11 in that quarterfinal game or whatever that was, first-round game. Um, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to see Virginia go and win the national championship this year. It, it wouldn't. Yeah. Um, you know, but but they they gotta they gotta go farther than than the first round. Um, you know, for me to feel like they're in that that top group. I don't have them in that top group yet, mm-hmm. but I am looking forward to um, you know watching these attackmen play this year. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, well, and you know, you think about attackmen years of the past. I mean. It was the uh, the Michael Mikey Powell and Ryan Boyle, you know Doniger. You know if you you know there was a year in two thousand four where there was like I can't remember all the rest of the guys, but this year you know we didn't even talk about Bernhardt. You know you mentioned Maryland, but Bernhardt Bernhardt is absolutely in that group, right? Absolutely. And and I'll, I'm putting Ashton Olting in that group too. You wait to see this guy play. This high point, high point, phenomenal, carrying him, uh, right? How about Grant Amen? How's he not in that group? He's yeah, three and seven. Grant Amen. I mean, three and seven in his first game. Mark Millen, Mark Millen had tweeted out uh, after that performance on Saturday that, you know, two years ago, everybody was talking about Grant Amen being amongst the very, very best players in the country. And last year, unfortunately, he gets hurt, doesn't play. And then he comes back, first game back against, you know, let's face it, a very well-coached team every year in Villanova and torches them for three and seven. Um so, but I think Grant Amant is in that group. There's no question Bernhardt's in that group. Like, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Bernhardt ends up being National Player of the Year. You know, he usually right. he's not 2-1 like he did the first game against Bucknell. But the reality is if Maryland goes and wins a national championship and he, uh, you know, plays as he's capable of playing, you know, he's arguably the, you know, the best playmaker in college across. But I think that there's another, another six to eight, ten guys that are also right in that same category. Um, you know, it is, it, there is just a lot, a lot of depth. Yeah, it's going to be, uh, I agree. You're the attackman. It's going to be exciting. Um, I had an opportunity to, uh, travel around to, uh, 10 programs the last week. And, you know, I would have loved to, for you to come along. to The environment of the, of the RV. I followed, uh, it might've been a little cramped in there, Jane. Uh, <laughs> tight. Might've been a little tight in there, but. Number uh, one rule. I'm following all of the journey on Twitter, and certainly we spoke, um, you know, a little bit at the end, and I was following it on Inside the Cross. So you went – so l- let me get this straight. I know you opened up going to Northwestern, and yep. then you went to Cleveland State. No, so I went Northwestern, Michigan, Notre Dame, Ohio State, Cleveland State, Penn State for the Army scrimmage, Colgate on a Sunday – Monday at Albany, then down to Annapolis to Navy on Tuesday, Virginia Wednesday, High Point Thursday, and then down to Atlanta, checked out uh, the Carolina opener uh, versus Mercer on the Saturday the 2nd. So when we spoke yesterday when I was playing Golden Tee, uh, you know, the question I, of course, asked you was, you know, what was the most impressive environment? And, uh, you know, you had stated that you, you can't really answer that question as they were all different. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you had to say that there was one commonality between all of the programs and the coaching staffs and, you know, your sort of peek into the culture that, that you know, you got on this trip, what would you say the one commonality between 
those 10 stops was? So I would say that, you know, one big one was just the, 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 the openness and welcoming uh, environment that the coaches had for our being there and allowing us to take that peak. Uh, these guys are incredibly passionate about their teams, about lacrosse, about learning, sharing, um, as I always say, the great game of lacrosse. And, um, you know, the commonality is that these guys are all building, you know, you use the word culture. And I, I think it is, it is, you know, it used to be that you just kind of coach the kids and your best X's and O's worked, but it's, it is the culture of the program and it's, it's reflected in the head coach. Um, and I would say that um, what, you know, the commonality is just the commitment to building the culture and the vision of, of these head coaches and these staffs uh, was, was truly impressive. And, and their, their, their openness and willingness to, to share um, was really, uh, really appreciated. Very cool. I think, I think that's, that's great feedback. And that's interesting. You know, I, I think when you, when you interact with coaches, I think that when you see coaches that are open and are, are open to sharing what they do and open to hearing other ideas, you know, you really speak to coaches confidence and their ability to do the job the right way. You and I were spoken yesterday, or were speaking yesterday, and, and kind of covering the Super Bowl and talking about Bill Belichick. And you know, one of the things that we spoke about, which is so impressive about Bill Belichick, is you look at his coaching tree. They had an article in the New York Post, I think, on Friday or Saturday before Sunday's Super Bowl. And it, you look at Bill Belichick's coaching tree, and it's you know, it's about 35 or 40 coaches that are now established you know, head coaches either in the NFL, high-level college football, you know, or assistants in the NFL at high-level college football. And, and they're really, you know, it, it's, it's unbelievable. And you think about these guys were all on Bill Belichick's staff at one point, right? You know Bill Belichick is not holding stuff from his staff when they're on his staff as they're looking to win the Super Bowl every single year. And they've done it, you know, more than everybody else. It's incredible how these guys go on after working for Bill Belichick and some become wildly successful. Others are in the process of pursuing success, but nobody seems to be able to replicate Bill Belichick's success yet. He's, he's open with all of his staff when they're on his staff during that respective season, yet he still remains the best at what he does. It's, it, it really is. It shows you how much more football he knows than everybody else. Or, you know, what Tony Romo was saying, you know, what he maybe does better than anybody else is he's able to articulate the changes that they're going to make over the course of the week and then have those guys go out and execute that on point, on time. To be able to do that, you know, week to week or – you know, in a two-week prep for the Super Bowl against the, the other best team in the world, it, it, it's just unbelievable. You know? It is. You know, you make a point that, I, that just dawned on me that's super interesting, which is that you, you talk about the confidence in coaches being open. You know, because at the end of the day, nobody can do what they do. Nobody right. can do what I can do. Nobody can do what you can do. You can take things and, and try to make it your own, but it becomes your own, right? Yeah. And, 
And, and that's the cool part about it. And the fact is, is that I can tell you everything I'm going to do. And you say, I'm interested in knowing it, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do anyways. Right. And it'd be the same for you. Like, that's right. I want to know what you're doing, but that doesn't mean I'm going to do all of it. And that's pretty much the truth. So anybody who's gets caught up in worrying about people knowing what they're doing, I get it. There's a certain amount of secrecy that you might want to have, but the example you, you, you gave with Bill Belichick is these guys can't do and they know everything that Bill does. <laughs> right. And they can't That's do exactly that. right. You know, the, 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 the guy that you really, or the example, I would say, which is perhaps the greatest in our sport is, is, you know, Kevin and Jerry Burnett at Notre Dame. The fact that these guys put all of their drills out there for the world to see, and they're still able year in, year out to have, you know, arguably the best defense in the country. And I think, yeah are probably widely recognized as the best defensive staff in the country. And, and Jerry coaching that, you know, is certainly observant yeah. of all the credit that he gets. But the fact that Jerry puts it all out there for everybody to see, all yeah. the drills and how to integrate it. And, and let's face it, I listened to his podcast that – I listened to the podcast that you had when he was on it. We had him on our in your, in your Face a couple years ago. And he – you know, he, it's full disclosure every time. And guess and, what? Nobody uh, – you know, 75% of the people don't like a veal. <laughs> right. I mean, it's just, it's just it, like you said. Well, yeah, but hope, you know, I mean, I, I get it. There's a different way to skin a cat. That's just a perfect example. I mean, you can't argue with Notre Dame being among the best defensive coach teams year in and year out. And they are like as heavy on beholds as anybody on the planet. And yet right. a lot of people are like, well, we don't do that. And that just goes to show you that there are different ways to skin a cat. What's a, I mean, what's a better sales pitch for the top recruits in the country than here's who we are. And we're still getting it done at a higher level than everybody else. And we're telling everybody what we're doing. Yeah. I now, that said, I don't think Bill Belichick is uh, going to be going uh, full disclosure on all the secrets to the, to the rest of the world. You know, no. so. but, but like you said, the people that speak his language of football yeah. all are able to identify everything that he does. Yeah. You know, and the guys that worked under him clearly understand the thought process behind what he does. And yet they aren't able to replicate that in a salary cap free agency sport. This isn't baseball. I mean, it's unreal what he's been able to do. And, uh, you know, we're fortunate to be viewers uh, at a time when he's coaching. Yeah, no doubt. Um, any other uh, thoughts, Andy, um, um, on the year before we uh, sort of wrap this first uh, in-season fell across the edition up? No, I, I think it's going to be uh, exciting to watch how the shot clock affects these games. It's going to be interesting to see, um, you know, the fallout from that positive negatively on how that affects face-offs and, and goaltending stats, um, you know, how teams choose to defend, how teams try to manage the shot clock and still – control tempo that will be a, a challenge to see you know, it's going to be interesting to see which staffs get out in front of these rule changes and are able to integrate strategies that manage the games on both ends of the fields and in special situations better than their peers and and see where that leads come playoff time in may yeah and i'll tell you i think that we're all going to be happy not to have to uh have our finger on the remote control fast forward button during the course of college lacrosse games on the replays, because I mean, like literally like, you know, all I would do is fast forward for the first, 
you know, minute and a half of almost every possession while people were spinning it before the timer came on or was close to coming on. No more possession shots. Um, people are going to be trying to score, which means that defenses are going to have to try to stop people from scoring, you know, from the beginning of the possession. People are going to be attacking. Of course, you know, the, the idea of controlling tempo is going to still be exist, but, but I think you're going to have to take the first, you know, the first good shot you have instead of, you know, being incredibly picky. And I think that's going to be better for the viewer for sure. Um, right. I, think, yeah. I, I think that you look at all this stuff, and this is maybe a discussion for another day, but uh, you know, the rules that are going to come about due to the rule changes for this season, the number one rule I'm calling that the committee puts in next time is they're going to legalize cross-checking. They've got it. If these attackmen can attack the goal on a dive with a shot clock, and the end of the shot clock, they're going to be dodging to the goal harder than ever before, You've got to give the defense some power back. And if you can't, you know, let's face it, everybody already cross-checks, but it's not considered a legal play, yet it's almost hardly ever called. Right. I think you've got to just make cross-checking flat-out legal, you know, and, and, and not necessarily where you're using a cross-check as a hit, so to speak. But you know, if you're taking five steps and cross-checking somebody in the neck or chest to put them down, that – I don't think should be legalized, but what should be legalized is cross-check holds. You, you've got to be able to allow these guys, you got to give them the tools that allow them to counter a dodger that's attacking you now. And right now, you, you don't allow these guys to do that unless you, unless you give them some power back. So I'd like to see that rule come into play. And if there is a prop bet for uh, you know, the next rules committee cycle, uh, I'm putting my money on the prop bet that legalized cross-checking becomes part of the Division One, well, college game. That's what I think. Well, that's, I think it's a great point, but I think before they do that, they got to figure out what the dive rule actually is. Because right now, I really think it's, uh, I think it's going to be a problem. Um, I think that what what seemed like was going to be awesome is going to be kind of a drag because of the, uh, the they've made it so hard to call. Um, you know, as far as you know, landing, you know, in the, the little snow cone that the refs created, you know, unilaterally that they presented at the uh, IMLCA and USILA meetings, um, you know. I, I, they, I, I, I eat snow cones. I don't land in them. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's pretty, I mean, that says it all. That's it. Um, so I think that's going to be kind of a drag because I think it could be such a great play. I just don't know why they couldn't just go with the MLL rule. You know, I, I agree. Look, it's like the goalie's trying to dive into you, then it's not. You know, you, either your ball's in the goal before you land. You know, all these extra things just ruined the, what could have been a great rule. I, 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 don't, I don't see, like, is the dive into the goal, like, is that that much dangerous than any other part of the game? I, I really don't think that's the case. Look, if you run and you jump and your foot is not touching the crease or obviously in the crease, the goal's good. Right. I think goal's good. And I think wiping out the goalie. And the goalie can decide how the goalie wants to play that. You know, right. if you're Scotty Raj and you want to come out and meet the guy, well, that's your prerogative. You know, maybe, maybe these coaches need to recruit, you know, bigger, more physical goalies. Maybe, maybe that's the adjustment. I don't know, you know, exactly what the deal is. But I'm with you. You, you can't say, well, he jumped into the goalie this time and this time he didn't jump into the goal. What's to prevent the goalie from stepping up and taking a charge? They are doing that. That's exactly yeah. what is happening. And that happened in the Duke Furman game, I think. And, and I think that it's very uh, sleazy. It's very a, sleazy. What? It's very sleazy. 
<laughs> it is. But on the other hand, you know, I mean, if you're going to get it, if, you, if you're going to go from, you know, you know, potential goal scored against to uh, one minute unreleasable, you know, on the positive end, and you got a good faceoff guy and a good man up unit. I mean, that's going to win a game for you. So, you know, sacrifice your goalie and just step out and, and take that charge every time. Well, so I, I, I think that, that rule was, was too bad that, that, you know, it's just too, it's too complicated. We'll see what, we'll see what happens when Denver plays Ohio state again in the final four and somebody jumps and dunks it and runs into, you know, the Ohio state goalie coach Tierney's going to lose his mind. You know, with that, if, if the subjectiveness of that call goes, you know, the other way, he lost his mind then and it was the right call. Yeah. Although in that particular play, he jumped behind the net. So it would have been good. Goal yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I think you need to make it black and white. Yeah. And I, my feeling. Did you run the goalie or not? I mean, I think that's it. It doesn't right? matter if you hit the goal. It doesn't matter. It, it can't matter. And listen, is, is that collision any different? than any other collision you know the it, no you, you, you've got a guy jumping in you've got one adult jumping into another adult if i'm the adult that's getting jumped into i'm really not that concerned about getting hurt i'm not you yeah. know every once in a while they might get hurt but you know what in life every once in a while you get hurt that's what happens that's life i just i just don't think that they, they've got they've got to make it black and white it can't be you know what was he trying to do here come on yeah yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, uh, what about the what about the size of the box? Do you think that's going to result in more transition? Obviously, they made the rule to to extend the size of the box years back to to try to increase transition. Was it back? Yeah, to backfire. What yeah, you I, I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I, I I don't I don't see it as that big of a deal. I mean, it. I guess it's a little bit big of a deal, but you know, for the most part, people on their rides are dropping back. And you might get a little bit of an advantage. Maybe with the shot clock rule in place, the extended box would be utilized more aggressively yeah. than it would be with a narrower box. Because if you're thinking, hey, you know what? We only have a certain amount of time to get a shot anyways. And this guy coming out of the box might give us, you know, uh, a little bit of an advantage. Maybe they push that that five on four that's, that's not quite a five on four rather than settle it up and, and worry about not getting something as good in a six-on-six. Six. Yeah. Well, we'll see. And that's going to be fun part is checking out all these rules along the way. So, uh, so Andy, really pumped up to do this. Um, I yeah. will uh, catch up with you next week. And um, really looking forward to our uh, um, in-season edition of the Phil Acrosophy podcast that we'll be doing on Tuesdays throughout the uh, 2019 season. Looking tough. All right, bro. Talk to you soon. Hey, bud. Later. The Lacrosse Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 10-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. To learn more or start getting better today, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash academy.